0: The Urban Farm Podcast is sponsored by HealthIQ.com. As I get older, I am finding that leaving a legacy is becoming more important. And a big part of that is making sure my loved ones are financially sound when I depart. One way to do that is through life insurance. HealthIQ is a life insurance agency that helps runners, cyclists, yogis, vegetarians, urban farmers, and other health-conscious people get lower rates on their life insurance, Visit healthiq.com forward slash urban farm to support our show and see if you qualify. Today on our podcast, we have someone who loves the art of a good story. We're talking with Vivian DeCourcy about telling a wild nature story. Vivian came from a long line of market gardeners, academics, and rebels, yet somehow found herself having lived in Chicago for 20 years in a high-rise practicing corporate financial law. She really missed the landscape of her childhood between Dublin and West Cork, and after getting breast cancer in her early 30s, she left corporate law, followed a childhood dream, and started writing scripts. She went back home and bought a small hill farm where her love for nature, landscape, writing, and trying to make the farm hers came together and gave her the opportunity to write the script for Dare to be Wild, released in spring of 2016. Dare to be Wild is a romantic adventure based on the true story of two young environmentalists whose quest is to show the world the power of wild nature as they reach for their dreams. One garden, one vast desert at a time. Welcome to the show today, Vivian. Are you ready to rock the garden?
1: I am ready to rock the garden. I don't know about you, but I love gardens and have done my whole life.
0: Sweet. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today?
1: Well, indeed, I can. I guess I grew up in Ireland and my father was an army colonel who loved gardening and used to grow his own vegetables. And my mother was an English teacher and sometime theater director. So I was often left at home in the summers helping my father in the garden. And in the winters, he used to do military strategy plans on the kitchen table for me to figure out how I should get ahead in any given battle.
0: (laughs) Oh, interesting.
1: Yes. So between the two of them, it gave me, I suppose, in some weird respect, a lot of resilience and a lot of English literature and a lot of love of theatre and play acting. Uh So, I mean, I guess because I was a middle class Irish child and because like middle class children all over the world, they kind of told me when I said I wanted to be an artist and a playwright that I could be a doctor or a lawyer. And so I chose what I felt was the lesser of two evils and became a lawyer, Uh which landed ultimately into being a, a corporate lawyer doing finance in Chicago for about 20 years, living in a high rise. And while I was there, I was always obsessed with, you know, script writing. And after I had a bout of cancer in about 1993, my husband said to me, you know, you've got to actually start executing your ideas. You've got to stop telling me you've got an idea for a screenplay. And I was always fascinated with James Lovelock's Gaia theory, you know, that the earth is a big super organism that will self-correct if you give it a chance. Of course. So, not content to write small stories, I decided I wanted to write sci fi epics. And the only problem was, I thought I was going to get to direct them. And of course, even today, women feature directors are about as rare as hen's teeth. I think 2% of media worldwide. It's now up to about 13% of all media, Uh which really is a kind of a disgrace. But I wouldn't sell any of the scripts to Miramax then or anybody else. And so, dare to. Be Wild is my first film, and it's about the art of wild gardening, a la Mary Reynolds, Mm -hmm. who is a now a very famous landscape designer of wild gardens and forest gardens and I decided when I went back to Ireland and had scraped some money together that I'd buy myself a hill farm and I would design a beautiful wild space and so I sent the design brief out to a number of big designers whose work I kind of liked on a worldwide basis right and it was a very specific design brief it called the theme of the garden was Celtic Zen and it called for hawthorn groves and wildflower rifts and Clover. lawns and things like that. And to my absolute amazement, the big landscape designers came back with lots of things with right angles and concrete and all the rest. I had wanted, <laughs> I remember, a motored effect around my house. I didn't want much, right? So anyway, one day somebody said to me, you don't want any of those people. You want this girl, Mary Reynolds. She's really young, but she just won the Chelsea Flower Show with a hitherto tried and untested wild garden. And so one day, Mary Reynolds arrived up with a lot of attitude and about six months later sent me back this design that blew my socks off frankly I had to build it and she then during the course of the build told me her story of actually first of all getting admitted making the cut from thousands to eight The Chelsea Flower Show, then not being able to find anyone who could build a wild garden because her garden called for 500 wild plant species that were native and had to bloom on cue. And she found actually a group of hippies in a place called Future Forests, which is a wildflower sanctuary in West Cork. Mm-hmm. And she fell in love with the son of the family. But his main goal was to try to build black forest parks in Ethiopia in highlands around Lalibella area, which is kind of like the Vatican of Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to prove that you could make the desert bloom again. And he had absolutely no interest in the Chelsea Flower Show, which he considered an outing for fashionistas. And so it's the story of she follows him to Ethiopia and she actually gains his respect and and gets him to come back and help her with the build of the garden, which had to be done in three weeks from start to finish. And we actually used the same crew In the film, as Mary had used 15 years earlier to build the garden, which was fun. We didn't even have to change their clothes. They all looked like, you know, what we call new age hippies. Uh But they're all botanists and they're all British and of different nationalities. So the garden was built by a huge, you know, portion of nationalities that put so much effort into it. And I suppose the kind of films I want to write are beautiful, inspirational stories, Mm -hmm. which illuminate some solutions for humanity and show the power of what a group of everyday people can do in the in the furtherance of a great idea yeah. and that's really all I'm interested in doing because God knows there's enough you know dark dystopian torture oh twisted God, no edgy kidding. films out there for the last 20 years that's all anybody does and the critics have bought into that psychosis and so needless to say we were absolutely thrilled because our film has gone all over the world but it hadn't gone to North America and the next thing I got a call one day from Netflix to say they'd bought the film out of a cast of you know hundreds of films
0: <laughs> Wow!
1: <laughs> so, so it's going on release by Netflix and at the moment it's on Amazon and you can purchase it there if you want to see it, Dare to be Wild. So we're really pleased with how well it's my first film and I got to direct it. So I'm one of those rare things, a female film director.
0: Nice. I got a great big smile on my face. So can you give me a timeline? Let's let's kind of talk years here. What was the timeline for all of this? When was the Chelsea show? When was your design in? When did the movie come out? Because it spans almost two decades, right?
1: Yes, as I say, it took as long as it takes a sapling to grow into a tree to make this film. It took really 12 years from the time I met Mary in 2004. She had made the garden at Chelsea and won the gold medal in 2002. Mm Mm-hmm she told me the story and I started writing the story and I had always wanted, as I said, to write scripts. So I'd been writing scripts of all different stripes at about 17. And I just realized that this script fitted perfectly as the prequel to another sci-fi epic I'd written called Dare to Breathe, which is about our world 157 years into the future. Mm. If we don't follow the advice of organizations like Urban Farm so thank you it's what it literally is the truth isn't it i mean our world is kind of hurtling towards you know extinction here in some way and so our film was all about as mary says in one of the lines i wrote for her let's throw a lifeline to the wilderness because the whole theme of the film is if we take back wild nature into that little space we control ourselves our own gardens we can little by little change things and that's what you're doing and that's what we want to do
0: So how do you do that? How do you actually grasp the wild? I won't say harness, because that's the wrong word, but how do we grasp or grok the wild and bring it and invite it in? How does that happen?
1: What what amazes me is that there isn't another feature film like this. I wanted to make something that was beautiful and inspirational and accessible to a wide variety of people, because I think you have to get the message out through mass media. You know, it's not enough to be, you know, a, a signatory to the Paris Climate Change Accord. We have to individually take the power back into our own lives, and we can do it through this methodology of growing your own vegetables or having your own clover lawn. You know, I mean, if you just think of clover lawns, for an example, a typical mowed lawn can't support one bee and has to be mowed over and over again. Whereas a clover lawn can support a myriad of pollinators and only has to be mowed twice a year. And it makes so much difference to sit out in the summer on a clover lawn and hear that it's alive and that bees are buzzing and there's butterflies. And it's just an entirely different environment. But the film and Mary's whole philosophy is based on a beautiful theme that comes from ancient Ireland. So the ancient Celtic farmers of Ireland used to have a little space that they would leave uncut at harvest time. It was called the Hare's Corner and the ancient farmers believed it was for luck but I think it's part and parcel of our philosophy and our survival because the Hare's Corner they left uncut at harvest time so that the small native animals and plant species could survive and so in our own gardens, I think we should all have, at a minimum, a hair's corner, you know? Oh, yes. I just think it's a nice idea.
0: So what would that look like? I'm assuming there's part of your farm that's a little bit manicured, right?
1: There's two small areas of lawn. There's a semicircular lawn that I actually cut a piece of the clover out on because you can mow clover just like you can mow la- grass. Uh-huh. And so I kind of cut a semicircle on that so I could go and lie on it or whatever. Now, you could just as easily lie on a clover lawn. But... But I just cut that out just because it's easier and kids play on it and that kind of thing. Uh but the rest of the garden pretty much is there's an awful lot of trees planted in it now and we have we have hawthorn trees and I actually took from the set of the movie the garden that stone walls that Mary made in her garden because it was called the Celtic Sanctuary and so it had a whole theme which you will see if you see the film Dare to be Wild there was a whole theme to her garden that was about recreating wild spaces and it's so beautiful.
0: I really want to focus in maybe I'll, I'll ask the question this way give me three things some Somebody can do to bring the wild into their yard. Well, the
1: first thing that I did was I had, I instead of having typical lawn, I actually sowed clover seed. Mm-hmm. The second thing I did was I wanted to have some fruits and some berries in the garden. And so I planted some beds and I planted trees around them. So the trees send down the mulch and the little props. I don't do an awful lot of it because I'm only there for part of the year. Uh-huh. But the Hawthorne Grove is really an absolutely magical experience. And it has a little bit of, you know, a few little boxes for lettuces and I have wild strawberries and things like that Uh so I love that I particularly like wild strawberries but birds like wild strawberries as well by the way
0: oh yes that is the case
1: (laughs) birds are very fond of wild strawberries so I also have ferns and I like to have places where animals can have a you know a habitat right and ferns which go the West Cork has a microclimate so it's very semi-tropical so the ferns grow absolutely wild mumbrecia grows wild and fuchsia grows wild. And so the hawthorns are surrounded by, Mombre- you know, that the, in the foreground, you've got a lot of mumbrisha and fuchsia, and then the hawthorn trees, and behind that more fuchsia, and behind the islands and peninsulas of Roaring Water Bay. But Mary's book, Garden Awakening, really gives you a how-to of forest gardening. And I would strongly recommend that anyone who's interested in putting this into effect, even if it's just in your window box, Uh you know on your city roof terrace on your own balcony or in your big suburban garden or Uh in a city park or in a schoolyard her book is a fantastic design help to that
0: how would you define forest gardening
1: i guess it's a way of integrating i mean it's it's not it's that's more a question you would have to ask mary Uh because she's really an expert on it but i guess it's it's a way of having you know every garden can probably support one tree and an area for growing and Uh i guess that's the culmination of it you know you it's it's how you do it it's how you plant under the tree it's what the tree does in terms of automatic mulch it's, it's a balanced ecosystem really yeah. isn't it that yes. actually feeds you and helps animals and allows animals to survive where you don't have to use pesticides mm-hmm. and all these things that absolutely kill our soil, because I think soil is so important to forest gardening as well. Oh, yes. Bringing back all the nutrients and all the bacteria that lives in the soil. I mean, it's being wiped out. And then, of course, it's draining off into rivers and streams. And what I cannot understand is why more people don't know about it and understand it. I just... It's,
0: it's a little bit mind-blowing, isn't it? It's
1: terrifying. It's terrifying. Yeah. It's absolutely terrifying. And it's not that complicated. It's actually good for you because you have to work harder. I mean, you have to bend over. You have to handle a trowel. Right. You have to use garden tools. But it's so much fun. And, you know, if you're bringing up children and everything, they actually grow to love it. You know, a friend of mine is doing it in London near where I live. Uh-huh. And her little kids are out like looking at tomatoes and, you know, saying, telling me the pepper is growing now. You know, this kind of thing. It's just lovely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I used to do with my father. I mean, it was no different. And he never used pesticides either. Like, they just weren't fashionable because there was a belief in Ireland that if you use pesticides that, you know, your your vegetables wouldn't taste good and how right they were.
0: Yeah, no kidding. You know, I had an interesting thing happen yesterday. I work with a lot of community gardens here in the Phoenix metropolitan area, Phoenix, Arizona. And one of my community garden leaders called me yesterday, literally just yesterday. And she said, Greg, I have one of our garden volunteers that is absolutely insisting that we use the treated wood on our raised garden beds, you know, the, the ones they uh-huh. treat with copper. And yeah, She said, I don't really want to do that, but he's insisting that we do it. And he's getting really forceful about, hey, we need to do this. And Mm -hmm. I just presenced for her. I said, listen, would you use a pesticide in your garden? And she said, absolutely not.
1: That's what you're doing.
0: Exactly, because that's what you're doing. So basically, then my follow through thought on that was, well, listen, I have here at the Urban Farm a zero tolerance for that stuff. And I would suggest to you that you do the same thing. And it sounds like that's where you're at as well.
1: Yeah, pretty much, yeah. I mean I'm a filmmaker, I'm not an expert on this, but I'm very, very interested in it. And where I live in West Cork, absolutely everybody is doing organic gardening yeah. and the food as a result is amazing. Yeah. In West Cork. But it was very hard to sell people. I mean, I had written, you know, typical movies about you know, sex violence and political intrigue that were dark and dystopian and of the fashion that uh-huh. people tend to like for the last 20 years, or at least what they've been taught to think they like. And when I decided I was doing a film about wild gardening or forest gardening or whatever it is we call it, because it's it's not as fully fledged as, as that in the movie, because you're telling a story, you know, about a competition and everything. Yeah. I mean, people just told me I was crazy. But there you are. We've been bought by Netflix now. It's like the badge of approval. And we're on Amazon. Yeah, it really is great. It's yeah. it's just, it's you know, it, it makes you think that things can change. Right. But of course, I mean, you know, there were lots of failures along the way. I mean, the movie went out all over the world from China to Brazil to Australia. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Israel, Germany, you know, everywhere. But I didn't really understand that in the festival circuit and in the distribution chain just how how incredibly full of kind of cronyism and how cutthroat it was, you know. So I couldn't understand why a film that people were telling me was beautiful and inspirational and that made them cry, you know, cry for the wild, was having such a hard time. And it took it took a while. It took much longer than we thought it would take to actually get to this point. And it took exactly the right distributor and exactly the right sales agent. Mm -hmm. We had to kind of cast off people who do thrillers and horrors and what I generically call dick flicks. So,
0: (laughs) yeah, Heidi, my sweetheart and I were looking through Netflix the other day, you know, for a good movie. And most of them are the, as you call them, dystopian thriller, violent horror movies. And it's like, yeah, I don't want to watch any of those.
1: That's right. There's very little else, and that's what I'm doing now. I'm actually forming a company, and I have a lot of support. I mean, I'm thrilled that the next movie, which is a you know much bigger budget science fiction epic called Dare to Breathe, is now in development, and I get to direct it. And it'll, nice. it, it's you know it's a big budget, and it's a beautiful love story as well, just like Dare Dare to Be Wild is a beautiful love story. Yeah. And it's very important to me that they have a theme as well. I mean, you would think, looking at most movies on platforms nowadays, that they were kind of being paid for by the by the NRA or something wouldn't you Yeah all about guns and violence and people being mean to each other and I think I think there's a whole generation that's grown up with that attitude and yep. we wanted to try to stop that but you know if I was to say what keeps you going is we just decided we had something very good and we just persevered and we finally got there but my god it's been 16 years
0: Yeah well you know interestingly enough in 2007 in fact I'm looking at the cover of the magazine right now this was on the cover of Scottsdale times that Scottsdale is one of our bedroom communities here in the Phoenix metropolitan area yes. and it says green extreme and it had a picture of me on the front cover in a nice dress shirt with my legs crossed and it says green extreme would you like to have this guy for your neighbor and they were talking about front yard gardens and they were kind of poking fun at me. And this was in 2007. And fast forward to 2018, that's 11 years later. I'm a rock star here in Phoenix now. People have yes. really embraced this. Movement.
1: That's so great. It's so changing. I mean, it's a long way to go, but my goodness, it has changed. Yeah. You know, I just think it's a huge success that that's happened. One of the things I studied in the context of this was the history of lawns. Because I hadn't really known that lawns became aspirational during the reign of King Charles I in England, which is in the 1630s. Uh And they became aspirational because only rich people in the aristocracy could afford them. And then that went to America and turned into, you know, tennis courts. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, and golf courses, again, aspirational. And then it became aspirational that you had a lawn in your suburb because anything else that had weeds was just not Derry Gur. And then there was local community policies and regulations that meant you couldn't have your lawn grow above a certain height. And now one of my cousins, who's who's a psychiatrist in Florida, installed a wildflower garden. And instead of them coming around to him and saying, you've got to cut that wildflower garden down to, you know, two inches, high. Uh-huh. People are coming around asking him how can they do it too. Yes. That's exactly you feel you're on, at least it's moving in the right direction. Because people always wanted, one of the points of Mary's Chelsea Garden was that people always want gardens to be tidy instead of dynamic, instead of having this great life force in them. And you know, people travel the world over to see places of untouched natural beauty and yet their own gardens pay little heed to that philosophy. They're not of nature, they're of almost the opposite of nature. They're desensitized and, and the word I'm looking for is, you know, they've had all the bacteria they've had all the life force taken out of them right. by weed killers and herbicides really
0: sterilized
1: sterilized was the word i was looking for yeah. thank you so i think there's really a change happening but it just needs to happen even more rapidly and in a bigger way and on a vaster scale and i hope with people who see our film that they realize that they can do that themselves in their own backyard and get their neighbors to do it and yeah you know, i'd love to form a dare to be wild movement like your urban gardens are Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of what I want. As soon as, you know, it's a really weird thing because you were asking me earlier, you know, what would I consider my biggest success? And so far it has come in what I would call very small but beautiful ways. Uh For example, a Taiwanese businessman. Every week, Mary and I hear from people that, you know, have seen the movie and love it, like literally every week. Oh, I'll bet. So a Taiwanese businessman contacted us to say that he had seen the movie with his family and he wanted to come to Ireland and look for businesses to invest it. Wow. And in France, a group of high school French boys gave the movie a standing ovation and told us it was awesome and asked why there aren't more movies like this. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really interesting when teenage boys like it because normally conventional wisdom would tell you teenage boys wouldn't like it. But everywhere we've gone, young men love this film because they identify with the philosophy of saving nature for the future generations. But my nice story was a father in Holland who saw the film with his little daughter and afterwards, she locked herself in the bedroom and when he knocked she said go away daddy I'm designing a wild garden Hmm. (laughs) and so with all of these comments it's really small things that you yeah grasp onto that know that you're on the right path no matter what the the dark people and the naysayers say and believe me there are plenty of those yeah. and more of them uh, nuking the the EPA for example which just i i nearly can't read it anymore without getting depressed but i figure it's the death rattle of the horrors of potential oligarchies and dictatorships
0: yeah Wow. Well, you know, it's it's really cool that things are changing and we're seeing it. You know, the the timeline for your movie and the timeline for my urban farming success is, you know, has kind of paralleled yes Uh, you know i love to see that that's happening
1: and you know the lovely part of it as well they actually are looking for beautiful movies Mm -hmm. because they know people want to see them because it's it's an interesting thing about trends in filmmaking because all these dark edgy you know dystopian films that critics tend to like audiences don't pay to go to see them it's about people trying to be cool but not really being cool Uh and if you think about it nobody wants to pay money to see something that's going to make them depressed or worse, leave them numb. And even at that, there are many movies you see, and they may be entertaining, but they're forgettable almost before you've left the movie theater. Right. And I remember the movies that really impressed me when I was young were films like Gandhi, where you saw that somebody could actually gain independence without shedding a drop of blood. And I just want to Dare to Be Wild to be one of those films. And I think it's beginning to happen for me that literally people take it to heart. Yeah. And I've had a journalist actually write to me that after she left the movie, she went home thinking about she wanted to sow things, wild things, you know? Yeah. And in Beverly Hills in California, this group of Virginia Robinson's Gardens, which was a really a, public, a beautiful public garden, heavily manicured, and they saw the movie with their gardening group who were kind of the who's who of Beverly Hills, and they decided to rewild all their lawns. They've done it. They've invited me out now because it's like a year and a half later and they say all the residing is gone. But they used to have those perfect manicured Beverly Hills lawns. So it's nice.
0: Yeah. Well, congratulations on on your success on this. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure
1: and what you might have learned from it. Well, I would say on this journey which has been a really interesting and a very very difficult journey of just constant conflict and difficulty and you know getting a project like this off the ground. Oh, yeah. I'd say the hard Part of it was encountering the cronyism and the kind of closed shoppedness and the cutthroatedness, particularly in the distribution and film festival process, mm-hmm. because it's really like any business about who you know and how you pitch and who's selling for you. And I just haven't had time to devote anything to that and what we just decided we would do is we would just relentlessly persevere and it's really by perseverance three years later that we're now going into north america in a pretty sizable way and i'm really thrilled
0: yeah well amazon and netflix that's pretty sizable
1: yes it's very good so but you know i never thought we'd get there but we we, somehow we always thought we'd get there because we knew that once people saw the movie that the spin was good that people recommended it and even last week people have seen it on amazon and i've been Contacted by more journalists and more journalists to do interviews and stuff because nice. people actually have loved it because it's like a breath of fresh air. Yeah. So I mean, that's my, that's been my biggest failure is I really didn't understand that process and the importance of you know having a huge distributor and just figuring right. out how to make that happen.
0: Yeah, let them do it.
1: And now we have a great distributor, actually.
0: Perfect. So, what do you consider your biggest success?
1: My biggest success? Well, I guess all my life I wanted to make films that illuminate solutions for humanity, Mm -hmm. and that's why I chose to make this film first. I wanted films that were enlightening and inspirational about characters who were driven to do something which was selfless and also really innovative and solved a problem that we have. And Mary Reynolds, like Urban Farm, solves problems for all of us hmm. and more of us should know about it and so to actually get this film made and what I had to do to get it made and now to have the, the <laughs> sci-fi sequel in development is to me a huge success because I didn't think once this happened, once the Netflix sale happened, everything started happening very rapidly and that's only since last December by the way.
0: Wow congratulations.
1: Yeah it's great so yeah. I now have you know three projects in the, in the pipeline and as luck would have it because luck somehow is helped by perseverance, isn't it? As luck would have it, Netflix now has a category called Strong Female Protagonist. And of course, along came we and hit that category just at the right time. If we'd hit it three years ago, it wouldn't have been the right wouldn't time.
0: wouldn't have been there,
1: yeah. It's just interesting from that perspective. Yeah. So I think success in a way is realizing that you can stick with something no matter how buffeted you are or how you just figure out a new way to go around down the riverbank or over the fence or under the fence. You just (laughs) keep driving. You just keep, keep going.
0: So what drives you?
1: I guess exactly what I'm saying. Like it or not, films affect how our society manifests itself. We are influenced by films. And for example, my cousin in Florida, who's a psychiatrist, told me that by the age of 18, the average child in the Western world will have seen over 400,000 acts of violence, including 40,000 murders from all media, television, movies, etc.
0: By the age of what?
1: By the age of 18, that's what they will have seen. 18, wow. 400,000 acts of violence and over 40,000. And murders and I just think that makes the Roman Colosseum look like a tea party yeah How can we possibly think that our world won't go to hell if people are so affected by kind of violence and tough talk and Mm -hmm. a lack of empathy with our neighbour or our neighbour's plight or whatever? And so, as I say, I wanted to to do films which demonstrate what ordinary people acting together in the furtherance of a great goal can achieve. And that is exactly what Dare to be Wild is. It's people acting in the furtherance of a great goal, in this case, to protect their wild places. And all of my projects way or the other like that. They're stories about inspirational people, whether they're historical people or science fiction people.
0: You did say that you had three stories in development. Care to share a little bit about that before we move on?
1: Yes, certainly. Well, one of the stories is about, it's another strong female protagonist story. It was brought to me by a British producer who is very good, Dimitri Jagger. And it is the story of Artemisia Gentileschi, who was the second greatest painter of the late Renaissance Counter Reformation period wow. in Rome, uh-huh. and a young woman who was raped when she was very young by one of her father's partners in painting. The Gentileschis were a very famous family of painters, and it is really her story of how she became an enormous painter in her own right. Yeah over a 40-year period and how she became, you know, in the early 1600s, a member mm-hmm. of the Academia. It was unheard of for women in that period to be that wow. successful, and she had to overcome extraordinary hurdles. So I'm doing her story, which is set in Rome, so of course I'll get to spend six months in Italy, and I'm very happy oh, about that. Oh,
0: nice. And
1: some gorgeous costumes and bodices and silks and taffetas and yeah. lots of beautiful paint colours and fabulous frescoes and cool. all of the rest that goes with Rome. And then the other one I'm doing, of course, is the big science fiction epic, Dare to be Wild. And then I'm doing another one called, which is set in New York and again in Rome. Oh, and I'm I'm doing a couple of TV series as well. I mean, I'm very busy. It's great. Nice.
0: Well, congratulations. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why?
1: Can I recommend two books?
0: Please bring it on. (laughs)
1: So one of my favourite books, I I said I read a lot of history and a lot of science fiction. I have a big history and science fiction library. And I read very, very little actual mainstream fiction, which is probably a mistake. But one of my favourite history books is a book by an author called Simon Sharma, and it's called Citizens. And Citizens is a book about all the cross currents that led to the French Revolution. And the reason I think Citizens is such an interesting book to read at this time is that the time of the French Revolution and the time we're living in now, it basically says you cannot take your democracy for granted. Your Mm -hmm. political system is a very fragile thing and it can easily be overtaken by forces of dictators or oligarchs. And that unfortunately can then boil over into a very bloody scenario. Mm-hmm. And at the time of the French Revolution, the disparity in wealth was actually not as bad as the disparity of wealth in many parts of the Western world today. And eventually that can all go horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. But the oligarchs realise it often until it's too late. And I am very much a pacifist in my thinking, and which is why I mentioned the movie Gandhi earlier. But I really worry about the cross currents that I see now. And I think that's why people should read Citizens. The other book that I love that I've already mentioned is Mary Reynolds' book, Garden Awakening, which you can find on Amazon. And it, as I've said, is Mary's wonderful hippie, rich in mysticism and insight, uh-huh. but also. Very, very practical how-to of forest gardening.
0: Beautiful. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
1: You mean apart from immediately buying on Amazon Dare (laughs) to be Wild? Perfect. I guess that I feel that you should try as best you can to take power back to yourself, Mm. each individual for himself, and try and see how you can rewild or have a forest garden. Every little patch of land can support one tree and a food resource, and it's not very difficult to do. And I think the joy and fun you get from it, even though it's a serious subject, because we're trying to preserve wild nature. And I strongly believe that we can protect what is left yeah. and we can regenerate what is lost. And I just feel, well, what, what, in the words of Mary in my film, let's throw a lifeline to the wilderness.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Vivian. Thank you. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Find out more, watch the movie.
1: You can watch the movie on Amazon. I think it's also on iTunes. It's called dare to be wild. mm mm-hmm. It stars Emma Greenwell, who is on Hulu right now. She was the star, one of the stars of Shameless, and Tom Hughes, who you would probably have seen in Victoria on PBS. And it's a beautiful romance. So that's what you can do. You can write to me. I'm on email at vivdecourcy at gmail And you should also look at Mary Reynolds on Instagram. She's under Wild Mary Mary.
0: <laughs> nice.
1: <laughs> it's her Instagram name. Perfect. Mary's book is well worth buying as well, Garden Awakening, Mary Reynolds.
0: Excellent. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash dare to be wild. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. The Urban Farm Podcast is sponsored by HealthIQ.com. A decade and a half ago, I took on a very interesting personal goal to run the Arizona Rock and Roll Half Marathon from the first running in 2004 until I was the only one that had run them all. They call us legacy runners. Since then, my times have slowed down a bit, but my commitment is stronger than ever. In fact, I just ran my 15th year in a row, and interestingly, there are less than 100 of us legacy runners left. Wouldn't it be cool if a life insurance agency rewarded me for that health-minded achievement? Well, I found one that will. Health IQ uses an exclusive qualifying process that helps health-conscious people like runners, cyclists, yogis, and vegetarians get lower rates on their life insurance. And if you have records like race results or those cool reports we get from the apps logging our efforts, Health IQ takes this into consideration to get you even more savings. Visit healthiq.com forward slash urban farm to support our show and see if you qualify. Just like saving money on your car insurance for being a good driver, Health IQ saves you money on your life insurance for living a health conscious lifestyle.